Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. America's top diplomat is in Israel, as the Hezbollah chief says a wider war is realistic. I'm joined by a Middle East expert and former Knesset member to discuss these looming fears. And the debate about natural abilities and gender in sport. Olympic medalist Castor Semenya shares her story. Then, how Nancy Pelosi's family became a target after January 6th. Christiane speaks to the former House Speaker's daughter, filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi about her new documentary, The Insurrectionist Next Door. Also ahead, the surge in anti-Semitism in America. Hari Srinivasan talks to national security expert Juliet Kayyem. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Bianca Goladriga in New York, sitting in for Christian Amanpour. As the siege in Gaza continues and the civilian death toll mounts, in the latest developments, there are dozens of casualties after an incident near Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital. That's according to multiple videos from the scene and the Hamas-run Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza. The cause is not immediately clear. The U.S. Secretary of State, meantime, is in Israel. Since the country launched its war against Hamas after the tragedy of October 7th, the rhetoric from Washington has been that Israel has a, quote, right to defend itself. But the administration is now calling for humanitarian pauses and the protection of civilians. We stand strong for the proposition that Israel has not only the right but the obligation to defend itself and to do everything possible to make sure that this October 7th can never happen again. Um, at the same time, as you just uh, made clear, uh, how Israel does this matters, and it is very important that when it comes to the protection of civilians who are caught in the crossfire of Hamas's making, that everything be done to uh, protect them and to bring assistance to those who so desperately need it. Uh, and we're not in any way responsible uh, for what happened on October 7th. So we're working on all of that uh, together. Uh, but we have a shared determination. Blinken is then traveling to Jordan as the U.S. seeks to avoid a larger regional conflict. And at the Lebanese border, the IDF says it's on, quote, very high alert after unusually fierce exchanges of fire there. Now, the head of Hezbollah is speaking out publicly for the first time since Hamas's attack nearly a month ago, an operation he says was, quote, 100 percent Palestinian. Hassan Nasrallah also said there is a realistic possibility of war escalating. Bell True is the chief correspondent, international correspondent at The Independent, has spent years reporting from inside Lebanon, covering multiple wars between Hamas and Israel. And Ksenia Sitlova is back with us. She's a former member of the Israeli Knesset. They join me from Tel Aviv. Welcome, both of you. Uh, Bell, let me first get you to respond. I know that you've been on the phone with sources about the news that we just reported about dozens of casualties at the Shifa Hospital in Gaza. Uh, more details uh, are coming 
coming out. What are you hearing? Well, I've just been speaking to doctors uh, on the ground who are in Hashifa, and to say Hashifa Hospital is, of course, one of the largest hospitals in Gaza. There's not just an, an awful lot of people being treated there who are wounded, but there are thousands of displaced people who are sheltering within the grounds. The doctor said to me it was an Israeli strike. It hit this afternoon as a convoy of ambulances were preparing to take wounded people from the north to the south of the Strip, hopefully to exit um, out through Egypt. I've reached out to the Israeli military. They said they will get back to me. We, they haven't claimed responsibility for this strike or they haven't also confirmed that it is their munitions. But the moment the scenes from the ground show an awful lot of wounded people, blood everywhere, at least one damaged ambulance, and the Palestinians are saying as many as 60 could be dead. But again, we cannot verify that number right now. Yeah, and we'll continue to follow any developments and headlines that we uh, are hearing as well. In the meantime, Ksenia, this comes as uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Tel Aviv. He, he met with the president of Israel and the prime minister. And it's, it's a, a tight rope that he is walking here because he's reiterated the U.S. support for Israel's right uh, and duty to defend itself. But he also said how Israel defends itself it really matters. And the focus should be on limiting civilians. How was that received within Israel? So uh, I believe that uh, Secretary Blinken uh, just repeated what was already uh, said by uh, uh, President Biden uh, during his visit and during his phone conversations uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, that Israel is, has absolutely full right to defend, its, to defend itself, but it has to follow the international legislation. It has to follow the red lines uh, inside Gaza. So uh, as for the current incident uh, in Shifa, we still do not know what happened there exactly. Uh, I mean, from the Israeli side, there is no response. There is, uh, uh, just like Bell said, uh, there is no official version uh, of this event. Uh, I just uh, have to remind that uh, just last week, uh, the IDF released the footage of uh, uh, aerial footage from uh, the area from uh, where the Shifa hospital uh, is located. And uh, it uh, claimed that there is... Uh, for years, there is a central command of Hamas uh, hides there uh, underground, uh, underneath the hospital. And there are many militants uh, in this hospital, uh, but on the underground floors that you don't really see. So is these two things connected? We still don't know as for now. Uh, but in any case, I have to tell you, Biana, you know, in my personal view, and this is what many experts and analysts and politicians and former politicians in Israel say, Israel has to defend the civilians in Gaza, not because uh, Anthony Blinken asks for it and not because President Biden asks for it, because this is a vital interest of the state of Israel. The next day after Hamas, and this was the, you know, this is like a clear goal uh, of the IDF and also of the political uh, leadership in Israel to eliminate Hamas. Let's suppose there is no Hamas. You still have to talk to someone in Gaza. You still have to talk to the same civilians that are being so severely hit right now uh, and uh, in many different uh, occasions before as well. Uh, you still need to develop a dialogue. And uh, if you want to build some moderate rule in Gaza, then obviously you have to promise today, you have to vouch today uh, for the civilians that you are doing everything possible in order to safeguard their lives. Yeah, and uh, this is something that we also heard from Secretary of State Blinken saying that, that after 
uh, this operation conducted by Israel, uh, the world and the region cannot go back to status quo of October 6th. And there has to be uh, room for negotiation for a two-state solution and for another party for Israel to be working with in the Palestinian community. Um, Bell, let's get you to weigh in on the other major headline because everyone was uh, waiting to hear from Hassan Nasrallah, the, the head of Hezbollah today, and his speech. And again, putting everything into perspective, everything is relative. This would have uh, been a speech uh, that would have alarmed the world had it occurred October 6th. But given the anticipation and the concern that perhaps we could see wider escalation within the region, uh, there was some sigh of relief that this wasn't as heated of rhetoric from Nasrallah as many had expected. Let's play some sound from him and then have you respond after. The worry is that the possibility of this front actually escalating or going into a fully-fledged war or becoming a wider war is a realistic one. It can happen. And the enemy has to make every provision for this. And I'm sure they do make every provision for this. And I'm sure they do think about it. So he said a war can happen. Um, just in reading and parsing every word he said, he didn't say a war will happen, meaning their involvement. Uh, how did you read what he said and what stood out to you? That's the key point here is that there was no declaration of war. And that was what people were concerned about. I, was, I had a late night briefing, a very deep on background briefing with Israeli uh, top officials, military officials. They were saying they were alarmed by the attacks that had escalated yesterday along the border, all along the border. Um, you know, there was a very, very, very uh, heavy fire. And there were some indications that this speech could be the moment that, that Nasrallah announces that Lebanon is fully fledged in a war with Israel and that this could spread across the region. The key thing is that he said it could happen. It wasn't a declaration of war. I think the other key thing is he said this was very much a Palestinian operation, a Palestinian cause, a Palestinian triumph. He kept talking about the fact that this was Palestinian, not regional. And I think the other thing is the messaging that he's telling his supporters. So obviously he's facing a lot of pressure and Hezbollah is facing a lot of pressure from within its own ranks, from within also its affiliated ranks, Palestinian armed groups within Lebanon, who are seeing what's happening in Gaza, who are putting pressure on, on Hezbollah to hit Israel harder. So I think what was quite interesting is that in this speech, he talked about the gains they've already made. He said that the strikes on Israel had caused Israel to move, I think he said a third of Israeli forces up north, you know, half the, the naval forces. Again, I can't confirm those figures. But the point was, he's saying that it's caused Israel to have to fight effectively on two fronts, which was helping what was happening in Gaza. I think that's a really important point. And I think the other thing that he said is that he very much was talking to the US. He said many, many times in this speech, the US could stop this by calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and ensuring that Israel follows suit. And that, I think, is quite key messaging, given Blinken was here in Israel doing just that. So I think together, all of those things, even though, as you said, this would be an incredibly alarming speech on the 6th of October, actually comes across as fairly cautious, given what everyone was expecting was going to happen. Uh, Ksenia, is that the take in Israel uh, among government officials? Well, um, I think that uh, of, uh, along with the sigh of relief, because uh, I did see some doomsday scenario today, I have to admit, uh, that were very worrying and uh, frightening, especially after the trauma uh, of the 7th of, uh, of uh, October. Uh, but along with that, there is this understanding that uh, 
first of all, Israelis never trust Nasrallah. He can say one thing, then he can do the next thing, uh, the next day, uh, something very different. Uh, and while we understand uh, that he is not interested to waste all of his firepower, manpower right now for Hamas, uh, he will be waiting for an order from Tehran, essentially, uh, to activate uh, everything that he has uh, under his command uh, in order to harm Israel when it uh, least expecting this in this moment. So uh, giving the build up, yes, you would expect that he would uh, declare uh, a war uh, or at least uh, formally, you know, that uh, Nasrallah is joining and Hezbollah is joining uh, the, uh, the combat against, uh, against Israel along with the Yemenis whom he mentioned and the, the Syrians uh, and of course uh, the Gazans themselves. Uh, yeah, but uh, he also said, uh, you know, something that is very important. He said, we cannot uh, harm in Israel in just one strike. We cannot do it yet. When we will be able to do it? You know, that's the big question. And that's why Israel will not sleep, uh, you know, uh, sound uh, tonight and also tomorrow, uh, because this front, uh, if it's not open formally, uh, it might be open someday soon. It's clear, though, that the price that uh, Hezbollah paid after 2006 still haunts him as well, as does the, the impact it had on Lebanon as a whole after the war with Israel then. Um, Bell, let me ask you a final question, because another big priority in the region and for Secretary of State Blinken is watching closely what is happening in the West Bank. Um, in, in the past three weeks, over 100 Palestinians have been killed. There is a lot of concern about settler violence there and what Israel is or isn't doing to contain that. I want to read an editor from Haaretz, uh, Israeli newspaper, that reads, if the government does not come to its senses immediately and respond decisively to the actions of the settlers in the territories, it will be adding another catastrophe to its record of failures. Bell, um, how do you view the Israeli government's response thus far from pressure both internally to do something about this, but obviously from its closest ally, the United States as well? Well, certainly we've seen an uptick across the board in the occupied West Bank in terms of uh, attacks by settlers, but also in terms of people being forcibly moved from displaced, you know, forced from their lands. And also in terms of numbers of arrests and also deaths of Palestinians in the West Bank. And these are numbers, by the way, coming from the UN. They've said that in, 2000, in 2021, there was about one settler attack a day. Now, since 7th of October, that's seven, on average, seven attacks a day. And at least 864, I think, was the last number people have been forced from their homes. So the, the UN is saying this is a dramatic increase of, of attacks in the West Bank and it's causing you know, a big problem. I think I was, you know, I put this to the Israeli military, I asked them because there's been some disturbing videos being shared showing people in military uniforms um, abusing Palestinians. They said that they are investigating this, uh, particularly the, the um, uh, accounts of abuse by soldiers and that they are monitoring the situation. But again, Israel's coming under pressure because it looks like as the war is happening in Gaza, settlers within the West Bank are using that moment to increase forcible um, displacements and attacks. And if that, that isn't reined in, then they're going to come under pressure internationally as well. Yeah, some of these settlers, we've seen videos that they seem uh, emboldened too, actually uh, taking on the, the military, the IDF soldiers in some skirmishes that, that we've seen as well. Um, Bell Truk, Svitlova, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate your perspective and analysis. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. 
quiets their snores, Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, turning now to domestic challenges facing the United States. Voting rights campaigners are calling the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, the most powerful election denier in Washington. His efforts to overturn the 2020 election are raising alarms about his role in the next election in 2024 as well, which makes a new HBO documentary called The Insurrectionist Next Door even more timely. The filmmaker is Alexandra Pelosi. If you recognize her last name, her mother is former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and was personally targeted on January 6th. It's about building bridges as Pelosi travels across America to speak to some of those who stormed the Capitol. Here's a clip. So how did you get into the Capitol? I just walked right in. January 6th really activated you. Yeah. What was it inside of you that made you think, I'm going to go inside the Capitol? I've been on the road meeting some of the Jan Sixers who were sent to jail for what they did that day. Did you go to the Capitol to assassinate my mother? No. You're rocking your MAGA tattoo and your Trump socks. There we go. I can see you're taking the sentencing very seriously. You're the first January 6er to walk in and take a felony charge. It was a peaceful protest. It was hijacked. Johnny, what if you're wrong about everything? I've been wrong before. Do you feel like you were a little brainwashed by President Trump? I feel so remorseful for what I did that day. The left says that you're domestic terrorists. The right says you're all just tourists. But the United States... Wow. Christian spoke with Alexander Pelosi about searching for closure in a deeply divided America. Alexandra Pelosi, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Your docs, a lot of them have been personal, and this one most especially. You were in there, but so too was your mother, obviously, on January 6th. And frankly... The people who went and desecrated and stormed her office and were looking for her, it was a scary moment. And at one point you asked one of your, your, your interviewees, did you go to assassinate my mom? Were you trying to find that out? What was their actual aim towards your own mother? For me, you know, I was in the Capitol on January 6th, as you mentioned, and the, I saw the people outside the window and my 16-year-old son was the one who called it and said, what if they stormed the Capitol? And all the police said, no, that will never happen. But I did see them. I could see their faces from the window. And I always had this burning, you know, inside of me. I really wanted to know who were these people because they evacuated the building. We were two minutes away from the speaker's lobby. I mean, I just really never got the answer. So that's what this film is. I spent two years on the road trying to meet people, trying to understand what it was inside of them that inspired them to come to the Capitol that day. But again, intentions of, again, you know. specifically to your personal, I mean, this is your mother, Speaker yeah. of the House, who is a target and a raw satch test across the United States. 
and your father has been attacked, you know, grievously uh, in the intervening uh, time. Did you find out why they wanted to and whether they wanted to do your own mother harm? No, I didn't get any real answers. I didn't get the closure that I was looking for, if that's what you're, if you're asking. What I did, I did not meet with any of the people, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, the militant, you know, the hate groups, the organizations that are in jail right now that were plotting to overthrow the government. I met with more of the people that, everyone who pled to mostly misdemeanors for participating in, we call them the normies, because in the trial, the Proud Boys trial, one of the Proud Boys had sent a message on Telegram to his followers that day that said, we're gonna get the normies to burn this city to ash today. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of the normies was what I was interested. Who are the normies that the Proud Boys were using as their chorus? Let, let me play a clip then, because the normies, you talk about this with insurrectionist Johnny Harris. Here's a clip. Do you realize that the militant organizations that were there to overthrow the government needed a chorus of little people? They called them normies, people like you. They were just the fools. They were using you. Nobody used me. I went there on my own free will. Nobody come up and said, hey, Norm, Normie, we're going to do this today. Nobody approached me trying to get me to do anything. I did stupid on my own. So we know that he got, I think, a seven-month uh, sentence. I mean, what do you call a normie? Well, I think they're just true believers in the cult of Trump. You know, people that were willing to get off their couch and drive across the country and break into the United States Capitol um, with the intentions of trying to delay, you know, the vote count. I, I just think that, I think they're, they're not all terrible people. They just did some terrible things that day. I don't think of them as being violent and dangerous. And they're not the Proud Boys, they're not the Oath Keepers. Mm -hmm. they're the, the, the Department of Justice has made distinctions between the different defendants. They have separated the people that really were there to do harm, maybe hang Mike Pence. Hang Mike Pence. Hang Mike Pence. Maybe put a bullet in Nancy Pelosi's noggin, as some of them declared they were there to do. Uh, I think that these are some of the people who are your neighbors. That's why it's called the insurrectionist next door. And then the reason why I thought I should talk to them is because I thought, you know, we have to engage with these people because they are our neighbors and they are going to be participating in the next election. Well, and I think that we have to try to engage. What should the rest of the world make of what has unfolded and what they're hearing in your documentary, The Insurrectionist Next Door, given the you know, the, 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 the tribalization that we see and the polarization all over the world um, and the attack on democracy. In the end, I really felt that talking to these people, it was like a collection, a mosaic of broken America. It just gives you a portrait of how broken this country is right now. It's about, I mean, it's just, it's about the fact that people grew up in poverty, there was this thing called the American dream that didn't really come through for them, that we're really not doing as a country the best we can. And this is, it's manifesting itself in politics in a weird way. And I think that's what you see more than anything in this film is, is how broken this country is right now. And the current Speaker of the House, who is an election denier and, uh, you know, aided and abetted a lot of the attempts to overturn the election, is sitting in your mother's former office. Yeah, that's a really dark thought. Wow. 
Okay, so I was trying to, this was, this whole mission was about trying to make peace. I had this whole Abe Lincoln, you know, charity towards all, malice towards none. I was really trying to bring some closure to this January 6th, but uh, I think that the Republicans in the House have decided that they have uh, other plans for this country and they're taking it in a much darker direction. It's interesting because you haven't brought closure, you haven't managed to bridge the gulf, but you have managed to talk to all these people and figure out who are our next-door neighbors. And one final question. A recent poll shows that support for political violence in the United States is rising. Obviously, as I said, your own family has been victim of that. Your father was brutally attacked last year. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a really scary thought. You know, a storm is coming, I would say. I would say I feel it every day. And it, it's a very frightening thought. We have, um, we have to try to make peace. We have to try to make peace before, you know, it gets, I, I mean, I don't even want to think about it, considering after what happened to my, what my family's been through. I just, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, so you're ending this on a really dark note. Wow, okay. Well, Alexandra yeah, Pelosi, I'm sorry. Let's hope things do get better. But thank you so much, Alexandra Pelosi, the insurrectionist next door. Thank you for having me. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Well, coming up, I will be speaking with Olympic champion Castor Semenya as she opens up about her story and gender discrimination in sport. But first, we return to the Israel-Hamas war and the global repercussions. Here in the United States, anti-Semitism threats have reached historic levels and anti-Arab sentiments are on the rise. College campuses are struggling to manage the outbreak of protests and uptick in hate. Hari Srinivasan talks to national security expert Juliette Kayyem about how this conflict is dividing America. Yana, thanks. Juliette Kayyem, thanks so much for joining us. Um, first, let's start with some of the images that we have seen of very few numbers of people actually being able to leave uh, Gaza and to get into Egypt. And we should say that for a lot of these, these are Americans who are finally getting a way out. Let's talk about some of the complexity in organizing this and how long this could take. Right. This will take a very long time. The numbers we're seeing are mere trickles from the couple hundred uh, that we know that we know of U.S. citizens that are stuck in in Gaza right now. The complexity is this, is that uh, basically the United States needs to find an honest broker to make sure that the movement of the citizens is safe. And that will probably be a third party, uh, either Egypt or 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 gutters in terms of getting that passage. So you have to make sure that they can get safely to the border and then through the border. Once they're in Egypt, they're, they're taken care of. What the United States doesn't want to do, at least right now, is to have any military presence that would suggest that we're getting involved on the ground to assist in even the extraction of our citizens. So you hear people talk about, well, the Navy's there. Why can't we get a ship there? It's not that easy. Our ships would then be vulnerable if they're attacked or anything happens. Then you're, you're, you're increasing the, the threat to the United States and to those citizens 
Hari, there's a third factor, which is what do the U.S. citizens want to do there? It's terrifying there, as we know, if they're stuck in Gaza City, uh, to get them to feel confident to leave in onto open roads down uh, 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 Gaza to Egypt is also um, a, you know, I mean, basically they're going to be making their own risk calculation at this stage. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, Christopher Wray, the uh, yeah. head of the FBI, who testified yeah. in front of Congress earlier this week. And he had a lot of different warnings. And we yeah. had, first of all, I mean, I guess that one of the headlines was to raise the threat level because yeah. he is concerned about attacks here on U.S. soil by a varying number of different actors. Yeah. Um, why, why does the FBI take this, this step now? Right. So so immediately after the terror attack by Hamas, the threat levels or there there was a, a warning to local and state law enforcement. Then that gets um, very specific in which a local uh, and state law enforcement are told by the federal government, you know, the Jewish community is under particular threat uh, because of what we were seeing online or what the U.S. was seeing online and because of obviously the atmospherics. Then that a third time increases to an overall increase in the national threat level. We don't use a color system anymore here in the United States. Christopher Ray, the FBI director, then testifies to say it is it is essentially off the charts now. That's happening for a variety of reasons. One is, of course, the conflict abroad is animating and energizing a lot of political interest and religious interests here uh, that are getting uh, that are for the most part, the appropriate, you know, First Amendment right to to uh, to have an opinion, but in some instances do uh, do become violent. The second is the right wing, uh, uh, a white supremacist uh, apparatus that that has always been anti-Semitic is is playing off of this conflict to draw others into their sort of historic um, anti-Semitism. The third piece is, of course, foreign actors taking advantage of our fights, our political fights, our religious fights, the and I mean, you know, verbal fights and and protests, taking advantage of it and amplifying um, and 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 creating disinformation about what's happening here. So all three of those things combined have now increased the the threat environment for, of course, Muslim Americans, Arab Americans, but in particular, uh, 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 Jewish Americans and the Jewish community. And that's why you're seeing local and state law enforcement, you know, fortify or 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 be present at synagogues and, and try to protect that community. So let's break that down a little bit. I mean, yeah. he, he said both homegrown violent extremists yeah. as well as domestic violent extremists. I yeah. think for our audience, what is the difference there? So the 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 homegrown is is the groups like the right wing groups that, whose names like, you know, uh, uh, vary depending who have always been um, uh uh, violent and have organized around ant, um, anti-Semitism. The uh, the domestic terrorist threat they're viewing as maybe sort of a, not sort of, but as a lone wolf, someone who's just going to become animated, no tie to an organization, maybe doesn't even know what they feel, who, um, you know, people get um, inspired by this language, inspired by the hate, inspired by the sort of uh, lack of you know, sort of, I guess I would say just like lack of ability to show empathy for either side. Like each side is sort of, you know, more animated than maybe it ought to be. You mentioned earlier that we are not in a color-coded system in the United States right now, but if we were, it would be kind of off the charts. Spell that out for us. What is that threshold? Where? What is, how do we get to an 11? 
Yeah, exactly. So, so um, that people will remember after 9-11, which there's a lot of analogies to right now in terms of uh, some of the um, domestic issues going on, uh, that there was a color code system of which uh, sort of was roundly criticized because no one actually knew what to do if it went up to red alert or orange or yellow. And so it's been replaced essentially with a narrative um, and which you heard FBI Director Christopher Ray tell, which is the these are the numbers that we're seeing in terms of the increased threat level, right? You have a population that's barely Jewish population that's barely three percent of the United States population receiving over seventy percent of the of the hate filled. Um, uh, ugliness that we're seeing uh, online and the kind of thing that the FBI has been paying attention to. So basically, when Christopher Ray says that or Secretary of Homeland Security Mayorkas says that they are basically um, talking to different uh, uh, different constituencies. The first is your local, state, tribal, territorial law enforcement, which is this is serious. This is not just background ch chatter. You need to keep vigilant. You need to uh, provide information if you're worried about individuals, uh, support your communities, uh, figure out what they want. So it's a, in some ways, it's a message to them. Uh, the other is it's a message to the impacted communities that some of this is also on your own situational awareness, your own um, uh, protection of your facility. So you do see synagogues, for example, hiring private um, uh, uh, guards or or just finding ways in which they can make people feel protected in the most sacred of, of religious sites for them, the, their, their synagogue. That's basically uh, what we heard this week uh, was um, everyone uh, this is serious. This is not just the background stuff anymore. And um, and hopefully uh, uh, this will help minimize the potential for harm, even if it can't minimize the hate uh, language that's out there. So what should universities and yeah. campuses do? Because right now it seems that the conversation is primarily about who is uh, whose free speech is being restricted yeah. or what are the kind of consequences to this. Um, so what are steps that schools yeah. or colleges are taking and should be taking? So there's a couple. The first is we got to view this through a public safety lens first, right? So the students are free to have whatever opinions they want. They are not allowed to threaten. They're not allowed to isolate. They're not allowed to intimidate. And certainly they're not allowed to use violence. Um, period. Those That's not even a that's not even a, a, a university rule. That is, in fact, rules of the public safety system that we are guided by. And I think what's happened is in their sort of twisting of trying to figure out what they want to say, universities have not taken that seriously, seriously enough. And I think that that um, behavior would be better in many ways if we began to just view this as we need to we need you know, the, we need to protect students and their safety and security, whatever their uh, 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 opinion is. The second is just actually kind of related to our first part of this conversation is, I think I've been around a long time. I think this is the first sort of Israeli conflict or, or war or violence in the area that has a has had a very organized uh, Palestinian um, 
uh, support that that you're just seeing it in colleges and universities. I think that's the nature of information. I think it's the nature of 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 this generation and and other organizing. I think universities are not used to that. They have to get used to the idea that there are uh, multiple opinions about a very complicated area, and to create the forums where we can do what we do best, which is try to find solutions and to educate and to provide forums for different ideas um, and maybe give students a space to be able to do that. I do believe that a lot of these higher political conversations um, and um, and fighting that's going on in universities and colleges from the funders, from outsiders and others who are unhappy with various statements that university presidents have made and stuff, I think that has increased um, some of the tensions that that we now I think I think this can be a long war that we now need to begin to to moderate and and provide forums for students with them understanding under no circumstances uh, is violence or intimidation uh, allowable. I wonder if whether it's the Department of Homeland Security or the FBI are looking into the impact that outside actors may yeah. have on our social media ecosystem because in the run-up to the elections yeah. uh, we saw that there were state actors who profited from yeah. dividing americans right i think that's exactly right and you you can see it we there's been reporting in the new york times about uh iran's um involvement and in, in trying to push a lot of these images around being pro hamas and and hezbollah you have the russians who are clearly taking advantage of it through their bot system anyone who's online can just tell what's what's going on you know people with with two followers are pushing stuff and then what we're adding to it is one of the most popular social media sites of uh, X, formerly Twitter, uh, it now has no um, filters to get this stuff out. You know, um, as anyone who's been in, who's in the field of analysis or reporting, uh, X used to be a place where you could have some confidence of what you were looking at. That's no longer true because those filters are gone. So you have outside actors taking advantage of 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 our of our domestic divisions, and then you have the filtering system no longer existing, and that's why you're getting this sort of. It seems like there's no no room for conversation. In particular, I mean, you raise the politics and the election of this. I mean, something that is clearly going on that 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 the, that the White House and the Democratic Party are going are going to have to face is Michigan. Um, if if you're a outside country that wants uh, a GOP candidate, or honestly, if you're just looking at the polling right now, Michigan, a swing state, it is it is sort of ground zero for these fights because as a large Arab and Muslim population and President Biden's polling amongst the Arab and Muslim community has plummeted in ways that no one's ever seen before, right? I mean, it's just it basically because um, because Biden is being viewed as too pro-Israel or pro, too pro-Netanyahu. That, too, uh, will have political consequences if, in fact, Michigan becomes, uh, a you know, sort of a, a, a ground for foreign actors as well as domestic ones to take advantage of of the of the just horror that's going on in the Middle East. You know, I wonder about what the potential for some of this content online, whether it's real or it's 
yeah. amped up and fake is. I mean, uh, Director Ray, one of the quotes that he had was, our most immediate concern is that the violent extremists, individual or small groups, yeah. will draw inspiration from the events in the Middle East to carry out attacks against Americans going about their daily lives. So, you know, how to, you know, connect those dots. Yeah. How, do, how does the FBI see what is this sort of online chatter and this, yeah. and, and turn into action? Right. So so one of the challenges with this particular conflict from a law enforcement perspective is the language is so heightened in ways that we've never really seen um, in, in recent history. And it's essentially the language of annihilation of one population or another. It is either the, the Palestinians and the Muslims are expendable or they're all terrorists, right? Or it's that um, it's it's the it's the um, anti-Zionism um, and um, or uh, anti-Semitism, which many Jewish Americans will view as and view as appropriately as sort of the annihilation, uh, not dissimilar to uh, the Holocaust. And we have to I, th I think we have to understand that's how it's being perceived by both populations of Americans uh, to maybe be able to uh, to bridge that gap. This is not just, I don't like this person. Both communities view it as annihilation language. So turning to the FBI, they're seeing this stuff online. Someone randomly says, you know, basically no more Jews or whatever, but that's just a statement. It's not going to be uh, um, an, an action in terms of violence. You're allowed to say that uh, in, in the United States. So, so what they do is they continue to monitor these open websites. There's nothing wrong with that. Determine whether anyone has a criminal or violent history, uh, someone who may amplify it a bit more, target a particular synagogue. That's on the sort of investigatory front. That's what the FBI can do. It can't do much until someone says, I'm going after this temple tomorrow or, you know, something something more organized than I don't like Jewish Americans or I don't like uh, um, uh, the faith. The second piece of it is now defense. And that's what you're also seeing. You're seeing governors, mayors and the Department of Homeland Security begin to push uh, protective assets at synagogues, Jewish community centers, uh, Jewish schools where people may feel or be more vulnerable. So it's that combination of things. But we have to understand the challenge is really is this language of annihilation of both against uh, 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 Judaism and, and Jews and against uh, uh, or viewing all Palestinians as pro-Hamas. It gives the, the person who might be radicalized a justification for the violence, right? They're just simply protecting themselves. And that that is why you saw Chris Ray. I think more energized in some ways than I've ever seen him before in that sense of this is really a, a flashing red light moment. And we all need to we all need to to watch what we say um, and to uh, uh, protect ourselves because of this this heightened environment. And unfortunately, we've seen actions take place against synagogues, yeah. Jewish individuals, as well as uh, Muslim individuals in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, either it's a it's the it's the attacks or the um, against uh, uh, student groups at universities, Jewish student groups against universities, uh, concerns about um, uh, synagogues and the threats, specific threats against synagogues and and other areas, um, and uh, and then of course the killing by stabbing um, the sort of most most intimate in a weird way, violence, right? I mean, he knew the kid uh, um, of, a, of a Muslim uh, a child 
uh, in Chicago. Uh, so all of it uh, is is what concerns uh, the FBI at this stage. It's not just talk. There are individuals who will act on it. And it takes sort of, you know, local, state, federal and the commu- government and the community uh, to remain uh, vigilant. And I should say, and it takes leadership from all of these institutions and government to not amplify that talk of annihilation, right? I mean, in other words, we that language is also something that triggers people who um, are looking for justification for their hate. Julia Kayam, thanks as always. Thanks. Well, now, when we talk about gender, sports is often on the front line. But while the debate frequently becomes a binary, the truth is often far more nuanced. No one exemplifies this more clearly than Castor Semenyo. The extraordinary South African athlete has won two Olympic gold medals for the 800 meters. But she also has found herself as the subject of a very toxic debate surrounding her very own identity. For years, she was forced to take hormones to lower her natural testosterone levels. Well, now she's telling her story in her new memoir, The Race to Be Myself, and raising questions about how we debate natural abilities. Castor Semenya joins me now from Los Angeles. Castor, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on the book. Um, You know, the timing of the book, given that your career has spanned decades now, has, has raised questions as to why you felt now was the time to tell your story. I want to read I want to read a bit from the book. Um, I have never spoken about it in detail about what happened during this time of my life, but now I am ready to do so. Why is now the time? Uh, Good morning. I think now is the time because I'm matured. Um, I think I've grown into sports, but I think the most important thing is that we need to start growing women's sports. We need to start understanding uh, the worth of women in sports and their abilities. Um, I think for me, it's all about fighting for what is right for women, uh, the equality, inclusivity, and the diverse. Uh, I think I'll say, yes, I'm ready uh, emotionally, uh, psychologically. Yeah, within, I say I'm fulfilled. And now I think it's the right time for us as women to take over and make sure that we protect our own. Athletes, uh, the, the, you, you have an innate sense to fight, but you fight on the field. You fight in your sport. You fight when you're racing and you're fighting against your competitors. In your case, though, you were fighting behind the scenes as well, and it started at a very young age. You describe in the book when you were just 18, you faced your first gender test, and you talk about what you thought was a doping test that ended up being a gender test on the rest day before the biggest race in your life. Can you talk to us about that moment uh, and how violating that must have felt at such a very young age in your life and in in your career? Yeah, I think it was a life-changing story because (laughs) here you are, you're 18 years of age, and then you're asked if you're not women enough. And your entire, you you know, childhood, you have been a woman. Yeah, regardless of the differences that you have in your in your body. But I think for me, what I had to turn around was like the humiliation, you know, um, you know, the injustice and people treating me with no respect. For me, I had to just carry myself and knowing what I stand for. I think the importance for me, it was knowing who I am, my identity and carry that, you know, to represent my country. And 
you know, that was a, a miscalculation, you know, from IAAF then because they thought for them doing what they did to me, it will distract me. It will stop me from loving the sports, you know, uh, I'm doing. And uh, that, that, that was wrong. And they need to understand that they need to start respecting, you know, young women and respecting women's sports. And they should stop regulating women's sports. They should let women decide what is right for, for women. But I'll say it has grown me. It has built me to be the person I am. Now I understand, you know, principles of life. I understand how to treat people with respect. But then I know the right of being. I'll say, yes, it did build me and I'm happy to be where I am today. For those that don't know your story, you mentioned the differences in your body. Can you, yes. can you talk about that? Yeah, of course. Um, for me, those who don't know, you know, the differences in my body, um, I'm born a woman, but I'm a woman with, you know, no uterus, you know, no violopian tube. I don't go through menstruation and stuff like that. I have um, a condition, you know, with, uh, you know, DSD, which, yes, I'm different, but it don't make me less a woman. I have, you know, high elevated testosterone, but it does not really play a role in my training or a role in my performances. It's just uh, one of those things we say it may be a disorder, but I think through my hard work, um, I am here where I am because of, you know, dedication, hard work, you know, discipline and all those things. But then it's con it considered a threat to a man, you know, sports, because when a woman does great, it becomes a problem. But then mm. when a man does good, they are phenomenal. But genetically, it's something that you can say you cannot control it. And you talk about what you were forced to do to, to be able to compete. Yes. And that is the testosterone reducing drugs that you describe having a negative impact on your body. You know, people get tested for doping and get uh, punished for putting chemicals and substances in their bodies. And yet that's exactly what you were forced to do in order to be able to compete. Um, can you give us more insight in into how that made you feel physically? Uh, to be honest, it, uh, I'll say it was hell because each and every day you live under stress. You're not happy within, you're never happy. And what you feel is that you make, it makes you feel sick, nauseous, you have panic attacks. It starts creating, you know, a little bit of blood clots, you know, in your system. Uh, your stomach is burning, you eat a lot, you can't sleep, you sweat a lot each and every day. I'll say, I'll not advise each and every, you know, anyone out there to go through what I had to go through because it's like uh, digging a hole that you can never fill up, you know. It's like you measure a casket and you get in and then you bury yourself. It, it, it was uh, not easy, it was hard times, but I think through that I had to learn to know the difference between right and wrong know the right of being, know my rights uh, as a young girl. And for now, we advocate for what is right. We fight this cause so it cannot happen to these young girls. That's hell, if I may say. And you're so poised. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that it's taken your own experience and your negative experience to come out on the other side and to talk about it in such a way as to be useful for others. 
perhaps may be going through something similar and think that they are alone. You know, in the book, you talk about the world of athletics needing to clean up the sport for male and female athletes. And I'm wondering just the irony and your reaction to how it felt when in 2017 it turned out that a Russian winner was actually doping, uh, that when that Russian beat you in the London Olympics um, and then was disqualified. So after all of this attention focused on you, to then have this happen, what was that moment like? I think for me, I'll say, you know, when things are meant to be, they're meant to be. And regardless of, you know, the ban and then being upgraded for, you know, being Olympic champion, world champion, I think for me, it's more for start understanding the importance of, you know, cleaning the sports the importance of making sure that you know people are aware of you know situations like this and looking into world athletics where they start talking about they want equality for women which is there is no equality there is no level in the sports because it is specifically for you know certain women and you say you want what's you know good for women and for me, yes, I'm upgrade, upgraded, you know, I'm happy with the results, but the most important thing for me is that we stand here and make sure that each and every individual is treated with respect, with dignity, you know, humanity, it's, it's most important in sports and we need to teach the sportsmanship within us as women, you know, but for me, I'll always, you know, advocate for what is right, I'll always question why women's sports, you understand? Why is it that important for a mm. man to want to regulate women's sports? Why is it not important to allow women to decide what is right for women's sports? Why is it that important for a man to want to justify himself? He wants to say, this is how women should look like, you understand? Yeah. For me, I think if those things, you know, we get to draw the line between men and women, to start understanding that it's important for us as women to decide what is right for us, I'll be fulfilled. Castor, on the issue of doping, I have to follow up with what World Athletics said to us in a statement, and they said uh, full-scale reforms were initiated by World Athletics President Sebastian Coe after his election. In 2015, the Independent Athletics Integrity Unit is seen as the gold standard in the world of sport, and its anti-doping program has made a real and impactful difference in our sport, end quote. Um, I don't want to spend time litigating uh, that statement because I do want to talk about the role of gender in sports. Uh, you are not transgender, but as you know, this yes. has become a very heated debate in the world of yeah. sports. I'm curious to get your take on this subject because we're hearing from many uh, athletes who support or, and, and have different countering views as well. Yeah, of course, I, I think this is a, a very, very important, you know, issue to, to be discussed. Uh, I'm not really good in terms of governance. I'm not really good in terms of regulation. But from my understanding, from someone who's different, um, I understand that things I need to be, you know, taken seriously. Issues like this, we need to sit down and try to iron out, you know, those differences. Each and every individual in this world has got the right of being, has got the right to compete in sports. But then in a situation like this, for us not to step on each other's toes, I think it will be very important uh, 
you know, for world sports to start understanding that, you know, the inclusivity and diverse, making sure that each and every individual is respected, each and every individual is accepted, you know, to partake in sports. But like I said, now for now, I'm not really an expert in terms of regulating sports. Mm. I love trans people. They are my family. They are beautiful. I love them for who they are. I think, I hope, you know, towards the end, you know, these situations will be resolved and each and every one, you know, will be able to take part, you know, you know, part in sports. Well, to conclude, we should let our viewers know in July, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that you had been let down by the Swiss legal system in your battle against limits on testosterone levels for female athletes. Um, so, Castor, I, I do want to thank you uh, for taking the time to speak to us, for speaking to other athletes who, who may find themselves in, in similar situations like yours to let them know that they are not alone. And we really do look forward to seeing what is next in your well, life. Thank you. And congratulations for all of your achievements thus far. Castor Semenya, thank you. Thanks. Well, speaking of heroes, in South Africa's sport, the national rugby team is back home after a triumphant win at the World Cup in France, beating New Zealand by just one point. While now taking a victory lap around the nation's thousands of South Africans are lining the streets in celebration. For a country plagued by poverty and inequality, this win really has boosted morale. Captain Sia Khaleesi spoke of the significance on his return. This one is for every single person in South Africa, rich, poor, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you come from because of the team that we have, which is a very diverse team, which is very beautiful as well. We all come from different walks of life, different races. I know this win will inspire a lot of people, but it's not going to change how people are in, in circumstance. But for us as players, it's going to give us a platform that we can open more opportunities like with our foundation, the works that we do around South Africa. So, yeah, we, we really hope this just doesn't end in a little bit of celebrations for a week. And we, it needs to do more. That's why we just love the world of sports, really uniting countries. President Cyril Ramaphosa has even declared a public holiday on December 15th. That is another example of sport breaking down barriers and harnessing hope. And that is it for now. Thank you so much for watching and goodbye from New York. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.